Hey there, it's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work that we do over time and across cultures. Because being human is a curious gig, and it always has been. For much of human history, finding shelter was something everyone just did on their own to survive. But with increasing labor specialization, the act of designing and building structures evolved into a distinct blend of art and science, becoming the discipline we know today as architecture. But when did this job, as such, become a thing? Today's guest, Viviano Villarreal Poiron, has a ripping good take on that replete with drama, intrigue, and bruised egos aplenty. So, hard hats on, we're headed to the eternal magnificence of Renaissance Rome. We're going to look at the emergence of architecture as a profession through the lens of a little-known rivalry that shaped the eternal city of Rome that we all know today. It's a great yarn, I promise, full of soaring visions, big money, brass knuckles, and of course, being Rome, papal maneuvering. My guest today is Viviano Villarreal Buren. Viviano holds a Bachelor of Architecture from Tech de Monterrey in Mexico and a master's degree in design theory and pedagogy from SciArc in Los Angeles. Viviano launched his professional career in the Pritzker Prize Dutch firm OMA, led by storied architect Rem Hulhas, working from their Hong Kong branch. In 2015, Viviano opened his own design studio with offices in Mexico and Hong Kong. He also works in academia, having taught at Hong Kong University and USJ of Macau in Asia. Presently, he's adjunct professor of architecture at the Universidad de Monterrey, UDEM, and leads the vertical studio of Catedra Mass at UANL, also in Monterrey, Mexico. Viviano, it's so great to have you with us today. Karen, I'm delighted to be here with you today. Very much been looking forward to this. Oh, me too. I love a great story. Um, I'm intrinsically really fascinated about architecture and the uses of space and, you know, really how the way in which humans create shelter is about so much more than, you know, keeping dry in, in storms and, and clear of the sun. So I've also been really excited to have this conversation with uh, an architect like yourself. I'd love for us to start by you answering what sounds like a really basic question maybe, but I don't think it really is. What is architecture and why does it matter? You know, actually that is, it's not a basic question because it is basically a question we cannot answer because architecture um, is a philosophical, um, uh, let's say profession. So the actual defining of what is and is not architecture is a very difficult thing to do. But for me, I think definitely it's space. And as you mentioned in your introduction, it's, uh, not, all, it's not shelter that has been going on for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, we don't have proof of that because, you know, mud and, and, and bamboo weathers away. But construction is not architecture. And just making a shelter for me is not architecture. It's, it's when that construction that has a purpose becomes something else. When that becomes a story that tells the story of a family, the story of a city, the story of a culture, 
and that changes these people, these humans' uh, way of life. For me, that is architecture. And I think it's important because uh, Renzo Piano, who is a very well-known architect, has this great phrase where he says, every architect needs to have the crazy idea that they can change the world. And I think uh, the profession of architecture has that innate ability of changing the environment. And our, and our environment is where we uh, dwell in. And you know, if the space around us promote uh, a good culture, I think we change for the better. I love it. It's so um, it's it's so idealistic in in the best sort of grounded way, <laughs> right? I mean, I think we we don't always think about that when we complain about the construction going on outside our our window or across the street. But I really love how you put that, and um, and the fact that our 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 case study today is going to be about how the city of Rome, as we know it, came to be. It sounds like it was very much the product of some crazy ideas <laughs> of people we might consider among the very first professional architects. I mean, it is a very romantic notion of it. It is for me architecture at its best, uh, and we you know we can talk about. Uh, many of my clients are developers, and we have an archetype of a developer which happened to be. I can't forget what number of president he was of the, the United States, but he was a developer. So there's a lot of greed also in the real estate and in the business side where architects serve in. But I think um, at its best, um, you have to be able to, you know, to, to sleep at night as an architect, to believe that you have the power to change the, the world for the better. Definitely. Yeah, don't we all want to leave a mark? That's great. Okay, so... When did this particular outlet for this, I, I think, sort of global and ageless human desire to, to leave a mark, to live forever, right? And what we leave behind emerge in the form of the architect. Um, ancient cities like Uruk or Chatal Hayuk or what, any of these uh, important uh, arch archaeological oh, sites that we sites. have. I'm right. so impressed that you know those. Those are more archaeological. <laughs> I love it. Well, that, we, we look at that in history of architecture, of course, but then the people operating there weren't architects as we know them today. Uh, you know, the, the first architects of the pyramids in Egypt, this guy, Imhotep, famous architect. You've got famous architects of Greece. Some of them were, you know, uh, political leaders and wanted to build their temples and build their palaces. Um, but the profession of the architect as we know it today in the contemporary world I think we can narrow it down to the uh, Renaissance in Florence. Okay. And something very interesting happened there in the Renaissance, where there was a, a particular family, the Medicis. Well, the Medicis were a banking family in Florence that became very powerful uh, to a point rivaling the power of the Pope, which was at that time unheard of. But they were, very, they were very art inclined and they were art patrons. And they had relationships with different architects one of them was called Leon Battista Alberti. And they came up with this idea that the architect should not just be only a, a craftsman. At that time, architects would work in a workshop where you know, the stonemasons, where the iron workers would work as a craftsman. Nothing wrong with that, but they believed that the architect should be this sort of Renaissance man that should have the knowledge of physics, military, poetry, music, medicine, 
about 12 different things that have to do with the space that you inhabit. Uh, speaking about in the current times that we're living of pandemics that are airborne, properly lit spaces and properly ventilated spaces have to do with medical reasons for us to live as organisms. And that needs to be planned in a, in a dwelling. So they came up with this idea that this Renaissance man needed to be educated in more of an academic setting. So they came up with the Neoplatonic Academy, which was very short-lived in Florence, where different artists studied art to become architects. And from there came Michelangelo and Da Vinci spent some time there, and then it closed down, but that set forth a huge problem. After they did that, then the academies for architecture started, and they were mostly under the behest of the king. So the French Royal Academy, then the uh, Royal English Academy, and so forth. But at that point then, architects were no longer craftsmen and builders. They were philosophers. They were artists. So the spectrum of, well, is this an art or is this an engineering construction profession became blurred. And that's why it is impossible to find what is and isn't architecture today. Yeah. I, I mean... I, it sounds actually like the hardest thing one could ever set out to do at that time. <laughs> expected. I mean, it, it, that is the definition of Renaissance man, of course, is mm. being well-educated in basically all forms of knowledge as they were known at the time. But I find it really interesting that that, that was the goal as opposed to trying to bring people with expertise in some of these areas, which were not considered essential prior to this time, such as medicine. You know, I mean, mm. it makes perfect sense. I have to admit, I was sort of like medicine when you first said it, but absolutely. Uh, there are very real material health implications for the design of, of the space that we inhabit and, and circulation of air and, and light obviously is critical, but mm. so fascinating that they actually decided that the architect should literally know everything <laughs> academic as well as have the chops to be essentially a glorified laborer. Exactly. And then it's up to you to pick on which side of the spectrum do you fall in. And then we're accused of charlatans because otherwise are we artists and then our, our construction quality doesn't matter or we actually we're not even... Uh, bothered in building our designs because it's more about the art or actually then on the other side we're very much engineering side we only build you know square boxes where you don't care about the poetics uh, or the story behind the the construction and and that's where the, uh, the rub how's that expression that's that the rub there lies the rub, I think. <laughs> yeah, we need a little linguistic flexibility there. It also, it, it sort of um, immediately introduces kind of a class system too, right? I mean, how many people could actually afford to employ one of these rarefied unicorns of a, of a Renaissance architect to design their place as opposed to just getting the local builder to help them throw up a, a a, a box with an, enough protection to keep the family safe from the elements. Well, but this is why the academies were for the king and by the king, because the king needed palaces, the king needed bridges. And this is why also it's very important that the architects knew about military, because they were building forts and fortifications and castles, 
primarily or a defense construction. And then after that, it houses some royals some of the time, but primarily- well, I mean, People didn't have time to sleep. They had to know everything. <laughs> yes. Uh, but there's definitely a separation between the architect that would build houses for uh, common people versus the academy architect that was building for the king. That was a, a clear mm -hmm. distinction for sure. You have mentioned the term Baroque and mm. that being an important element of, of this emergence of a profession of architecture. Could you tell us what that means? Well, in art movements, usually, and in philosophy, usually you see this sort of tendency where there is a, a series of uh, concepts put forward or ideas, and then either they die out or somebody comes with an immediate reaction that's contrary to these ideas. So in philosophers, uh, X or Y philosopher will come up with an idea, and then the next one says, well, I'll take your idea, chop it in the middle, turn it around, and now it's my idea. And this is now the new thing. So this point, moment in time that we're speaking about the Renaissance, um, the architecture that was being built was very static. Um, so by static, I mean, architecture is not meant to move, but you would see very large- Hopefully heavy... not, unless there's a, <laughs> an earthquake and then you don't want it to move either, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's weird to talk about static in architecture, but in, an, in, a, in a compositional uh, way of speaking, there were very large, very heavy constructions that seem pretty static. So the Baroque comes in as a response to this. Also, uh, for the most part, um, anything that had to do with the Renaissance was symmetry-based. So symmetry was something that was uh, being searched for. Architects wanted to achieve ultimate symmetry. Um, in some cultures, because we're very currently talking about something that's very Western European-based, but in some cultures in, in, in Asia, the circle in itself is a spiritual or a, a, a godlike uh, figure in the sense that no human can draw a perfect circle because if you zoom in, you will eventually find, if you zoom in enough, you'll eventually find out that it's a series of uh, straight segments that when you zoom out becomes circle. So a circle is perfectly symmetric and trying to achieve symmetry in all parts of the building was a definitely goal of the Renaissance architects. So then the idea starts brewing of motion of dy dy uh, dynamics within an architectural building, well, within a building, to be able to feel and see movement in a static element. And this was the key thing of the Baroque. It coincided as well with a kind of huge PR movement of the Catholic church or the Christian church, um, because everything that was being built under this uh, emerging new style called Baroque, which at the time was not called Baroque, it was just a moment of its style. The, um, it was just a style of the moment. Was it, it con a... considered sort of the, the new style? I mean, is that what, were, were people kind of, you know, horrified Abs by it? Were they excited by it? I mean, how did people react to that? Absolutely. I would love to know exactly how things were received um, with more critics on the ground in the time, but you have to, we have to understand that we look at these buildings today in 2021 and we say, oh, that's a classical building. At the time, that was the most contemporary avant-garde thing anybody, anybody yeah. had ever seen. Um, so every one of these new buildings became sort of like a beacon of promotion of the church. Uh, and that was a huge PR campaign from the Pope and the papal state with each new building. 
And the Baroque sits there right after, you know, you've got Gothic, uh, which is a style that seeks uh, height, uh, spires, uh, immense uh, structural engineering. Renaissance becomes heavier. Uh, it's not as light as Gothic and very static and very symmetrical when Baroque brings in movement into architecture. And with this uh, PR campaign of the church, also facades are treated more as sculptural elements. They're embedded with sculpture everywhere, with niches, with the human figures, but also the, the facade itself is understood as a piece of sculpture. Okay, so we're in the Renaissance, we're in Italy, we're in a time where the church, uh, as usual, was, was kind of flexing its muscle and in one particular way by sponsoring the production of this kind of amazing new style of architecture. Uh, I, I really just wonder what, what an observer would, would see in one of these new Baroque facades or by walking through one of these new Baroque buildings what, what would make them feel movement where before the Renaissance style, as you said, was quite heavy and static? But I think one great way to explain this is actually through sculpture. And to understand the Baroque, to really get what the Baroque was about, it is best viewed through the story of this immense rivalry of these two characters, these two architects called oh, Bernini good. Yes, yes. and Borromini. You promised us a great ripping yarn about these guys. Let's let's get into that. That would be great. Yes, Bernini and Bormini, two Italian architects amongst who between them two and a period of, you know, a hundred years, basically designed and built all the buildings that are important within the Baroque in Rome. Uh, wow. Two extraordinary individuals. Two very different individuals. Um, and I apologize again that their names are so similar. That might be a problem to our listeners. So Bernini and Borromini, although they have very similar names, could not be more different. But between them, they fought tooth and nail uh, amongst popes and you know aristocrats in Rome to get their buildings built. Yeah, well, and you know that any fiction author would not dare give us such difficult names that blend together. But <laughs> it sounds like this is going to be one of those stories of, you know, the truth is stranger than fiction anyway. So we'll we'll just have to really listen very carefully as you describe one and then the other. Um, how about you introduce us to each of these personages? Yes, let me try to give a little bit of life to these two names of Bernini and Borromini. Um, I'll start with Bernini. Bernini came from the south of Italy. Uh, we still have to remember that this point of time, Italy was very much divided in different kingdoms uh, with the papal states being the most important one, but he came from Naples and he comes from a well-to-do family. His father was a sculpture artist. And this will be important going back to the point of movement in architecture, this dy dynamics in, in these facades. And uh, his father, Pietro Bernini was a very well-established uh, uh, sculpture artist. And he got called by the Pope to move to Rome to work on all the sculptures that the architecture that the Vatican needed. So he comes. That's a, that's a big commission. <laughs> that's a big, that's a job for you, the rest you, of your you life. You like, wait for that. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> exactly. And he brings along his two-year-old son. So Bernini, this is Gian Lorenzo Bernini, who is uh, 
to become a genius of sculpture and architecture. Bernini uh, grows up in the Vatican. He grows uh, up walking around all these palaces and going every day to his father's workshop and helping out with the different carvings of the marble and all these sculptures being produced for the Pope. And he gets to know all the cardinals and all the soon-to-be popes uh, of the time. Um, he grows up to be a very well-respected architect. We'll get more into that. That is very good-looking. He's very social. Um, you know, he can talk to anybody from any walk of life. Uh, he's just a very charismatic person. Borromini is a completely different character. Borromini, uh, you couldn't make this up, but he comes from the north of Italy. It's actually funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, truth is, is always stranger than fiction. Mm. I believe it. I love it. Mm. So Borromini comes from an area called Ticino, uh, which at the time was part of Italy, but now it's part of Switzerland. So there's a confusion if he's Swiss or not. He's been featured on Swiss notes, contemporary Swiss notes. The Swiss are good with putting architects on their money. Uh, but he was definitely Italian. Uh, from the north of Italy, and he was a son of a stonemason worker. Talking about the guilds and architects working as craftsmen, these are people that were cutting stones that are going to be used to for construction sites. Today, in modern times, we have brick and CMU blocks. Well, back then, you had to cut the stone to actually make these blocks or bake bricks. Um, so he was not as a well-to-do family as Bernini's, but it was not too bad. He, he was definitely not lower class. Uh, he studied uh, architecture in Milan under a few uh, apprenticeships. And then for reasons that are not well-documented, he left his family without letting them know, and he fled to Rome as a youngster. And when he comes to Rome, he uh, contacts uh, one of his relatives, which is Carlo Maderno, who's an architect, that's working at St. Peter's Cathedral in the construction of St. Peter's. Uh, but Borromini was a very special individual in the sense that he was not charismatic at all. Um, he was never known to have any friends. He would dress all in black. He was known as an individual who was very difficult to deal and talk with. Uh, he never married. Uh, it was rumored that he was homosexual. And he ended up taking his own life. So we've got Borromini, who, you know, he, he's got a bit of a, of a dark side there, obviously. Mm. And, and sounds like he had solid training. He had apprenticeships and, and seems to have been related in, in terms of his family to people working in the business of architecture already. But a little bit of a different introduction to it all than uh, Bernini from your description. It sounds like he kind of grew up in a magical childhood. I mean, can you imagine Absolutely. growing up in the Vatican watching your father create the adornments for it? So that's a really fascinating distinction between the two of them. So I, I think we can we can already start to to kind of visualize how they might have butted heads. And and did they? Did they? Did they literally well, publicly? At, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean fighting, but you know. Space. Oh, very much so, very publicly. But we'll get to that. Okay, at this okay. point, they haven't met each other, but they will meet. And here's the thing you know how 
when when people talk conspiracy theories, they say follow the money, right? To get down yeah. to the brass tacks of things or understand where the agendas lie. Again, you have to follow the money here, and the money goes towards the popes. And I always already give it a little bit of an inkling. These two architects would meet because of the popes. So the, yeah, the money comes into the popes, but obviously that money goes right back out again if they are spending money to build all these monuments to to the church and, and to their own power. Obviously, so yeah, how how did these two come together through the popes? Um, that's that's a great question because to understand them, you have to understand all the popes that they lived with. The Bernini's lifespan would span around eight popes, and he would work eight with popes. Eight wow. popes. Wow. And so he, he lived would, a long time. Yes, he lived 82 years old. Um, unfortunately, not the case for Borromini, much younger. I forget, but I believe he died in his 60s from his self-inflicted wounds. Um, yes, so basically the popes were the patrons in this case. And they were building their churches and their palaces for them and their families. Um, so with the popes, it get, gets confusing because you've got the-, the I was just the... gonna say, are they supposed to have families? Oh, we won't go there. You know, <laughs> I, I, a disclosure, I went to many years of Catholic school. I'm not even Catholic. My family did that to me. But um, yeah, those popes, they were a bit naughty. They, they needed to hide their family away in the palaces. Okay. <laughs> well, part of the hiding the money, this is me speculating, is the changing of the names because you've got the papal family with a name and then you've got the pope, when elected pope, he chooses a different name. So amongst the popes that Bernini and Borromini would work for, there's four main popes, um, which would be Paul V, uh, Gregory XV, Urban VIII, and Innocent X. And these are all popes around uh, um, the, the 1600s. So the popes would use architects to build their palaces and to build their churches. So they had to pick them. And you've got... Gian Lorenzo Bernini right there growing up in the Vatican. And on the other side of the city, you've got young Borromini uh, who moved there fleeing from his family to work with his relative, Carlo Maderno, who's working on the most important building for the Catholic Church, probably one of the most important buildings in Western Europe at the time. That's St. Pe Peter's, you said, right? Exactly, St. Peter's. Okay. Um, and so at that point, they have not met. And Bernini is a little bit younger than Borromini. But Bernini is starting to help out his father uh, with the sculptures. And there's this cardinal, Cardinal Scipione, who is cousin of a pope to be, that spots him and, and realizes that this kid, he's, this 12-year-old kid has great talent, and start wow. giving him 12. commissions. Yes. Wow. So he's a prodigy, too. He's not just the golden child. Mm. Uh, it will be very clear to our audience that my favorite is Borromini. I always go for the underdog, but it is undoubtable. Uh, you cannot deny the genius of Bernini, that's for sure. And this cardinal um, saw this inkling and wanted to foster it. And so he starts asking for commissions. The first one is, it's called Goat. <laughs> it's a tiny tabletop sculpture of a 12-year-old, and it's beautiful. It's a goat with its, uh, its offspring. And he moves on to larger sculptures, to you know, three meter tall sculptures, um, of which now they are kind of world famous. They're sitting there at the Galleria Borghesi. This cardinal that we're speaking about is Scipione Borghesi, and his cousin became uh, the Borghesi Pope, Paul V. 
And so he starts realizing uh, with how better and better Bernini is getting in sculpture. And remember that the Baroque sees architecture and sculpture as the same, that this could be the new papal architect. Got it. So that's bringing up on that side of the Vatican. On the other side, it's St. Peter's. And Borromini is working there. He's getting his arms and hands dirty. You have to understand, if we think about St. Peter's today, we see a beautiful marble palace, a gigantic uh, marble it's construction. gigantic, yeah. Mm -hmm. But we have to remember there was an old St. Peter's, uh, which was more of a, let's say, uh, a procession-style uh, church, which was being remodeled and rebuilt on top of it with the new one. And about 10 architects worked on St. Peter's. They were not fired. They just kept dying because the construction took such a long time. So, you know, Bramante, Michelangelo, and I can name a few others. But eventually, it got to the point, I think he was like the sixth one, to Carlo Maderno, which is Borromini's uh, relative. I think he was an uncle. Borromini starts getting more and more responsibility within the job, the construction site. And Carlo Maderno starts giving him, oh, you can design this door, you can design this archway, you can design this. And he realized because of his stone cutting, uh, let's say education, that he was very proficient in structure and the technical aspects of building, but was also a very good designer in the little stuff that he would give them leeway to design within this building, which, you know, the boss is the Pope, and this is the most important building in Western Europe. So imagine- oh, that, That's not yeah. stressful at all. No, no, no pressure. <laughs> Easy job, right? So it's understandable that uh, his level of responsibility starts incrementing slowly. However, Maderno is aging. He's getting old and he's getting sick. And so that's when Borromini becomes basically almost the de facto person in charge without really being. Maderno still is in charge. And so Bernini grew up in the Vatican and Borromini going up in the construction site of St. Peter's. And what happens is Maderno dies. Now, at this point, Cardinal Scipioni had realized that Bernini would be a great papal architect. And it started giving him a few buildings to renovate in Rome. So he does Santa Viviana, he renovates the facade, he creates the, the sculpture for the saint Santa Viviana herself. And it's well done in a tiny little church outside of Rome. And that's the only thing he had done as an architect. Other than that, he had done this, you know, painfully beautiful sculptures, which I uh, uh, urge our audience to go and look at them, uh, Apollo and Daphne or the Rape of Prosperina. You know, you see these hands uh, grabbing flesh and you cannot believe that this is marble. Mm. I've been to the Galleria Borghese where they are. They're, very, they're, they're exhibited in a very sort of like gaudy environment. It's a lot of red and green marble. But if you look up at these images when they're put against black backgrounds and the white marble it's, sits there by itself, it's absolutely gorgeous. But what I'm trying to say is that he was a sculpture artist. He was not an architect. And he had done mm. one, two renovations. That, that was it. At the point when Maderno dies. And Cardinal Scipioni says, this is it. And it was a surprise to no one except for Borromini. Borromini thought he was very sad for the death of Maderno, but he thought that he was the natural selection to just keep on going with the project. He had been leading it for several years now. 
And the very next day, he's presented with his new boss, Bernini. And that's where they meet. Ah, ah okay. <laughs> so it wasn't quite what Borromini expected. And uh, do you, what, yeah, how do you think Bernini felt about that? Um, what, what might, I, I understand it, it's perhaps some conjecture, perhaps not. I, I don't know what kind of evidence remains as to their working relationship, such as it might have been, but maybe, um, yeah, talk about that a little bit for us, if you can. Well, um, there are contracts. So definitely Bormini became contracted underneath Bernini. The story goes that Bernini approached Bormini and he said that he respected Maderno's work and all the work that he had been doing underneath him and that he was sorry for uh, his relative's loss. Uh, but, you know, the Pope wants him to be in charge and he doesn't feel ready to be in charge of this huge building. He's a sculpture artist. He's not an architect. And then he knew that Borromini was very technically proficient and he proposed a collaboration. This is what you would expect from a person who's charismatic. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, diplomatic. Bernini, yes. Mm. I'm sure Bernini must have read uh, <laughs> the Carnegie book of how to influence people and and make friends, right? <clears throat> and and Borromini went along with it. And so at that point, it's a collaboration and it's going well. And it's not only in St. Peter's, it's with other projects that the Pope has. So the Pope had St. Peter's going on, which is a legacy project from previous popes, from previous architects, because again, it took such a long time. And also his palace. Uh, so the... Um, the Barberini Palace. Right now we're in Pope um, Urban VIII. So we, the original Pope, uh, the Borghese Pope has now died. But, you know, Berini is still the papal Pope. So they start working together. And the first project they finish is the Baldacchino. So I'm not sure, Karen, if you know what a, a Baldacchino is. I, I do not. And I would hazard to guess there might be another person or two who doesn't listening. <laughs> so please tell us. So a baldachin, uh, it's not found in every church, but it's common in, in Roman Baroque churches, is a little shelter on top of the altar. And when I say little, at the scale of St. Peter's, it's a 15, 30-foot tall <laughs> shelter, <laughs> like a little canopy. Uh, it's a very heavy thing. It's tons and tons of steel. So what the Pope had envisioned was, because the construction of St. Peter's had taken such a long time, to kind of create a baldacchino to have the first mass they celebrated there, even though there was still no roof, no dome to St. Peter's. Ah, it, was, okay. it was under construction. So again, for our listeners, imagine St. Peter's under construction, you know, the tack, 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 and the dust of marble everywhere. So they come up with a design. It's meant to be a collaboration between Bernini and Borromini. It was so tall and so heavy that the structure was most probably done all by Borromini. And it was very delicate um, sculptural details. One of uh, Urban's uh, symbols was the bee. And so Bernini was very smart in putting bees all over <laughs> the baldachin. Oh. <laughs> yes, he was good with PR. So they come up with this beautiful baldachin and it, it is unveiled. And the first mass takes place in St. Peter's and it's published in all the papers in Rome and it's everybody's talking about it and the design is credited only to the young magnificent prodigy Gian Lorenzo Bernini. Oh. No mention of Borromini at all. 
So the next, <laughs> yes, the next day, Borromini, all dressed in black, as you can imagine, comes in and says, that's outrageous. And he says, you can keep all my money, but you cannot keep credit for my work. And he walked out, out of the most he important- He quit? He quit. Yes. I mean, I, I have to stress, he quit work under the Pope, your guaranteed work for life, at the most important construction site in Western Europe. Well, and let's put that on the flip side of it, too. Not only is it sort of the, the plumbest gig you're going to get work for life, but you let down the Pope, you're done as a professional. Who's going to hire you? Exactly. And that was the story of Borromini's life. Um, but this is completely in check with his personality. This is a genius different to the genius of Bernini. This is a genius which knows no compromise, which has no people skills whatsoever. It's the complete opposite of Bernini. And so it makes sense yeah. that he would walk out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that's who he was. I mean, he, he didn't really have a choice. Now, at that time, when you walk out of this, he was also walking out of a, a project he managed to finish, which was the Pope's palace, uh, the Barberini Palazzo. And this is where you can start to see that this is a bit of a game of popes. And it's also a little bit of the dynamics. I like that game of popes. I like that. <laughs> yes. Is that yours? You should, that is you mine. Should trademark. That's a good one. You I can keep that one. I can keep that one. Winter's coming. Let's play a game of popes. <laughs> In the Barberini Palace, uh, there is a central staircase, uh, which takes you up to the third floor, which is the Piano Nobile, which is where the family lives which is designed by Bernini. But there's a secondary staircase, which is designed by Borromini. So you've got two staircases in the same building by each architect. And this is clearly a testing of the Pope. Like, well, let's see how the other guy designs, you know? Of course, the difference, just like, you know, the family they came from and their background histories, the central staircase is huge, beautifully lit. And the design from Bernini is so regal. And it's just so uh, perfect, symmetrically and static and beautiful. The space they give for Borromini's staircase is a damp, badly lit little corner. If, but if you walk in there, you're gonna see the most haunting staircase you've ever seen in your life. It's based on an elliptical plan and there's curves and movement everywhere. And it's shocking to see because it looks something more like Saha Hadid, which is a famous British Iraqi architect from 2020, than something from the Baroque in the 1500s. And you can start seeing these two different discussions within the Baroque, Bernini's and Borromini. And it's a wonder to visit Palazzo Barberini, so I recommend. Oh, I'm so intrigued. I mean, well, okay, I'm, uh, I'm gonna say I, uh, I appreciate how different spaces and different design elements within them make me feel as, as an uneducated person moving through them. But it's hard for me to get excited uh, in general about something like, well, the, the design of the staircase was really special in this case versus that case. But the way you described it, I really want to see it now. <laughs> it's gorgeous. I've taken students there and it's a tiny space, but we stay there 20 minutes. And Karen, when's the last time you stayed 
willingly in a stairwell for 20 minutes. No, never, never, never. That, that's really remarkable. But going back to the context, at that point in that palace, they're working together. It's a collaboration. It becomes a breaking point at St. Peter's when he walks out. But then you can say that's a win for Bernini because this other architect that could be a rival decided to just leave the job. And so Bernini thrives with the Pope. You know, anything that the Pope needs built, renovated, bridges, sculptures, palaces, churches, it's going to be Bernini, Bernini, Bernini. And but Rome how, loves can him. I ask a question? I, I, uh, sorry, just a quick uh, question here. Had Bernini by this point developed the sort of technical and engineering acumen that Bormini brought from the beginning? Or did he surround himself with others who could supply that expertise once Bormini broke, broke partnership with? Well, with the easy Bernini. way to respond to that is no, he never did. And, it would, and it's going to come back to haunt him. However, he was always capable. Uh, it's just that with Borromini, you had it in a single person. So yes, Bernini did surround himself with the people that had the technical knowledge to be able to do it. Now, you know, Bernini was no dunce, uh, but he was not as strong on the technical side. Again, it goes back to the spectrum of, you know, how much scientific, how much art is within your architecture. And, it, you know, it depends on the individual, of course. In the end, the building needs to stand. That's the important thing, right? Yeah, that's that's the, that's sort of the the low bar we have to set for a successful building, right? So, uh, Borromini goes on to basically not get many clients, to not make any money. When he died, he didn't really have a a, a great amount of wealth at all. On the other hand, Bernini amassed a great amount of wealth in his life. There's going to be a series of controversies for, controversies for both architects. So um, Bernini, for example, had a, had a brother called Luigi Bernini. And they were involved with a romantic triangle. Um, uh, a worker for Bernini um, had a wife called Constanza Bonarelli and Bernini developed a liking for Constanza and started um, an affair with her. Luigi, his brother, was also involved in an affair with Constanza. Oh. When Bernini finds out, he really loses his marbles um, and he does really bad things. He almost beats his brother. His brother, allegedly, the story goes that he ran into a church so that he couldn't be killed inside of a church. Oh, wow. And then he sends one of his workers to, uh, with a blade to cut Constanza's um, face, which he does. <gasps> wow. This is like mobster stuff. 100%. There's the brass knuckles. All right. Now, before this came to a head, there is a, a sculpture of Constanza's bust by Bernini, which survives to this day. So this story is crystallized by that work of art. Because after that work, then this thing happened. Now, intended uh, homicide, no matter that you're in uh, Baroque Rome, is still intended homicide. And Bernini could have been not only fired, but also imprisoned or banished from Rome, which would have been, of course, terrible. What he did was, of course, terrible. But with his connections with the Pope, he was only fined something like 30,000 scudi 
which is more or less what Bernini would charge for one sculpture. Oh, wow. All right. It pays to have the Pope in your pocket. <laughs> yes. Now, that's not going well. But on top of that, you mentioned it, you foreshadowed it, his technical abilities. Turns out that the facade of St. Peter's, if you look at it, it has two bell towers, two campanili. The south uh, tower is starting to crack. And people are saying it's in danger of collapsing. And people are saying it's because the design of Bernini was flawed. And so there is a big uh, committee set up by the Pope called Congregazione to find out what's going on. At the point where this starts to happen, the Pope dies. So Pope Urban VIII, his you know, main uh, promoter dies. And there's going to be a new Pope that comes in. This new Pope is innocent from the Pamphili family. When Pope Innocent comes in, he thinks that Urban VIII was very lavish and spent way too much of the Vatican's money. He thought that this Cavalier, which he was a gentleman now, but he was honored with, he was knighted, so it's called Cavalier, uh, was also very extravagant and it was very bad what he had done to this woman and to his brother and he felt that this is a person he did not want to be associated with. And on top of that, you know, his building, his most important building was in danger of collapsing. Yeah. So that's a lot of, a lot of ticks in the negative column there. Yes. So he sets up this congregation and this, this council to figure out what's the problem, if Bernini is really at fault or not. And he populates this council with the best architects and engineers of Rome at that point in time. And guess who's in that council? Bormini. Of course. Ah. Smiling from ear to ear. Oh, I bet. So Bormini uh, lashes out uh, a very crude indictment of the lack of technical skills from Bernini and has found that he was, I won't get into all the technicals because we can talk about an hour for it, but that it was the architect's fault. And that, yes, it was in danger of collapsing because he didn't understand the mechanics of the foundations and blah, blah, blah. So it's a very bad point in time for Bernini. And so the Pope says, you know what? We're going to ignore Bernini for all of our next projects. What a reversal. And since Borromini was on the committee now, he becomes um, a nearby ear for grievances, a nearby brain for projects. And this new Pope, um, the Pope Innocent from the Pampoli family realizes that, you know, his house needs a few renovations. So he starts renovating the Pampoli Palace. And in front of the Pampoli Palace, there's a very well-known plaza in Rome called the Piazza Navona. So at the time, Piazza Navona was dirt. There was no piazza, actually. It was more of a campo. That's the name in Italy for, uh, let's say, hard ground surfaces that are not paved. And so the Pope says, well, you know, I think we should do a little renovations here and we should do a fountain, a centerpiece. Let's get Borromini on board. So Borromini is living a great moment. His arch rival is now paying for past dues for what he did to him with the Balakino. Mm -hmm. And now the Pope is ignoring him. By this point in time, Berlin is very wealthy. He's not preoccupied at all, but it's not great. So Borromini helps out the Pope with the planning of his fountain in this square, this Piazza Navona. 
he helps do the engineering to bring water to the square to do the 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 piping and get the water flowing and all this and he gives the pope an idea he says i think it would be great that this fountain that you want innocent uh should pay an homage to the four known great rivers of the world at that time they only knew four and the pope said yeah that's a great idea so at the at that point in time the advisor of the pope said look uh innocent you cannot just give the commission straight to borromini you have to do a competition so they organize a competition they bring in six architects not bernini so that was very clear that the pope did not like bernini yeah, the design, out of six, you'd think that the, the former darling might have made that, that list. <laughs> not only that, this former darling had done dozens of fountains around Rome, very well known for Urban VIII, right? Uh, so yes, it was very clear that the, there was not a liking towards Bernini. And from the designs, Borromini's design won. And so Borromini is now the favored architect. He is now becoming the papal architect in ways. But this would not last. Um, Bernini being from the upper class that he was and that he achieved with his connections with the Pope, had a friend called Ludovici. And he set up a little trick for the Pope. He got Bernini to do a model. He said, please, Bernini, I feel really bad that you were not included in this competition. Would you please come up with a model? Because I would just like to know what you'd have done. Now, at this point in time, Bernini is working on renovations for Ludovici's palace, this nobleman that was married to uh, um, some blood relative of the Pope. And he says, yeah, please make this model. And Bernini's, you know, he's kind of busy, but this is his client and friend. So he wants to be agreeable as, you know, charismatic Bernini would be. So he designs a wooden model for him. Now, because Ludovici was married into the papal family, he had a dinner scheduled with the Pope. And he put this model in a room where the Pope knew, where, where he knew that the Pope would then rest after the dinner. So they oh, had a very- so sneaky. Did he <laughs> yes. put like a couple of bottles of wine next to it too? <laughs> exactly. So after dinner, not before, once he's like nice and full belly, he sits at this sitting room in this, part of the Vatican, and he sees the model, and he's mesmerized by it. And he accuses Ludovici, he's immediately onto him, he says, I know what you did. This can only be the work of Gian Lorenzo. And the problem is that if one, this is his quote, allegedly by a couple of authors, if one wants to block Gian Lorenzo's work, one must never set eyes on it. Oh, gosh, you just can't resist it. It's that good. Exactly. And to be honest, it is a really good uh, project. So what happened in the very next day is that Borromini was fired from the architecture competition he had won. The, the mm -hmm. project is taken away from him. It was his idea of it being an homage to the four rivers of the world. And the project is given to Bernini. Now you can imagine what's going through Borromini's head. Yes, you've already told us that Borromini takes his own life. I suspect at the moment he was thinking about taking Bernini's life instead. He was furious and he spoke to the Pope and the Pope's advisor, but there was nothing left to do. However, the Pope did feel a little bit bad. He was not out to hurt Borromini, but 
Bernini's project was just well, that. He wanted the brilliant. best result. I mean, it was that important a public statement, right? So you kind of can see where the Pope's coming from as Ex much as it's not <clears throat> fair. I mean, life's not always fair. Exactly. So in Consolation Prize, when St. Peter was being built and was not yet finished and couldn't function as a church, the main church in Rome that was being used for the Pope's masses, let's say, was St. John the Lateran, San Giovanni Laterano. And it's a huge church, and I actually quite like that a lot more than St. Peter's. And so he gave the renovation works of San Giovanni to Borromini, and he does a brilliant work. He brings light in, he does some amazing sculptural pieces, he completely renovates the whole building. And this is one of the buildings where he gets his award. Uh, he gets knighted as well, uh, but he gets knighted 30 years after Bernini got knighted. And so Borromini had his controversies as well. One night, um, his uh, workers told him that there was a guy defacing the marble slabs that had been prepared for the project. And he got so mad, he, as we've seen now, had a temper. He had some temper issues. He ordered his foreman to beat up this guy called Marco Antonio Busson. The problem is that the foreman got a little bit trigger happy and they killed the guy. Oh, yeah. And so the body was found at San Giovanni. And, um, you know, again, homicide. And again, because he knew the Pope, he got off fairly easily. Officially, he was meant to be um, banished from Rome to Orvieto, which is 50 kilometers outside, but he never was required to leave Rome. Wow, that's a tale, all right. <laughs> and so through all of these, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it, what's interesting is that their, their relationship really did seem to span the gamut of kind, kind of cordial, perhaps distant, but, you know, reasonable collaboration all the way to, let's just call it active subterfuge and, and, and warfare. Um, so what, what, what was the upshot of this chapter in, in Rome's architectural history and what well, came next? I think, I, I forget what the phrase is, but I think, um, there's, there's a sense of, of that your rivals push you to do better. You know, yeah, you, want to, yeah. you want to best each other. So in the end, uh, who wins is Rome and history because we have this <laughs> right. amazing story to tell. And and the, the fantastic thing is that we don't only have the words of the story and what's written and, and the drawings, but we have the buildings that we can go and visit. And that is the full circle of this, that it's, which, which is why I give this tour to students uh, every summer um, before COVID clearly, because it's such a shame to go there and see the buildings and not learn the history behind them. Oh my gosh, it, it, it adds so much uh, of the human element to it. I mean, it, it's, it, it really brings cold stone to life, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And it's so close. They were constantly chasing each other. You know, you go to St. Peter's, you see things that are designed by Bernini and Borromini. You see the Baldekin where the, you know, it's it, in Spanish we say, uh, Manzana de la Escorda, which is the apple of discord, is the, the baldachin. <laughs> you go to the Palazzo Barberini, you see one staircase by one architect, one staircase by the other. You get to compare them, you know, 15 meters apart. It's really incredible. 
And that will continue for the rest of their lives. They're continually trying to best each other, but in such close um, proximity, including their masterpieces, are right next to each other. Uh, it's, it, it's really incredible. Um, so I like to talk about their masterpieces because I um, have mixed opinions, whereas you know the Vox Populi thinks that they're certain buildings that are their masterpiece, but I think there are other buildings that are really their masterpieces. The, the common ground masterpiece for Borromini is a church called San Carlo Borromeo alla Quattro Fontane. Now, I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it is. That and, didn't, yeah, that sort of washed over me. Yes. Um, <laughs> San, Car San Carlo, um, because it's such a mouthful, even uh, Romans call it San Carlino because his masterpiece of a church is so, so small because the type of clients that Borromini was able to get had no money. Now, understand that this was an architect that had been, you know, doing his apprenticeship and his experience working for massive projects like St. Peter's. You're not going to get other clients like the Pope. So there's this huge struggle for Borromini to find the adequate clients where he could really flex his muscles. So he ended up really giving away his work to small orders of nuns and monks here and there which had very little sites and very little budgets to work with. But the beauty is what he does. Oh, limitation with, is, a, is a, a great um, fertilizer for creativity, isn't it? Exactly. It, I mean, limitations make you have to respond with creative ways, right? When you go into it, maybe 40 or 50 people can fit sitting down in the benches. And what you oh, see- Oh, so it's really tiny. It is very small. It's, I mean- uh, somebody from Mexico or from the U.S. would call that a chapel, not a church. But it is a church, and it has its own crypt and everything. You walk in there, and you see a dome that is based on an oval, which is not uh, very common at, at that point in time. And there's all these geometric patterns that are infused into that dome and give it life. And it's really an astounding space in such a small little site. So he crams in all this movement and all these geometries in one single space. Frank Gehry, who's a, you know, one of the most avant-garde architects we have today, his and stuff is And he makes that crazy. sort of amazing sort of wavy, this is really technical language here, but be beautiful, wavy, and, and kind of reflective. That's what I think about when I think of Gary. Is that, is that right? Yeah, he does this metal facades and titanium. He became extremely famous when he did the Guggenheim in Bilbao. It became known as the right. Bilbao effect. In, in the US, he's got the LA concert hall, Disney concert hall, and Chicago has got the Millennium Pavilion. Yeah, he does this. It's very much in connection with the Baroque in the sense of trying to show movement in the building and treating the building as a total work of art, as a sculpture, a piece of sculpture. So it, it makes sense that he references Borromini, but he has a great quote in it. He says, San Carlino from Borromini has all the right moves. He has done, I have done nothing that he didn't do. And you're talking about 600 wow, years apart. That's right? amazing, actually. Well, and I, you know, I have to confess that I look at something like um, the Guggenheim Bilbao, and I, I, I mean, I can see it's, it's a thing of beauty, but... I would have never really 
made that connection in my mind that this is this is actually a direct line to the Baroque in the sense that what it expresses is movement and it is a piece of sculpture overall. Mm. I, I really love that. And now that makes perfect sense, <laughs> you tell me. That's the interesting part about following the history of architecture because you, you can start make these connection points and understand how slowly it tries to, you know, create a new step in this staircase um, of the timeline of, of architecture. Richard Serra, who is a very well-known sculpture artist, American, uh, he does like these- Like big sculpture. Does he do big outdoor sculptures? Humongous outdoor sculptures. Yeah, yeah, sculptures. okay. So, all right. Yep, that's, I was thinking of the right person. All right, again, I'm going to just be honest. I, I'm fascinated by it. Don't understand it. Tell us about it. And how does well, it relate to B&B? <laughs> <laughs> Serra has this concept where, you know, you mentioned it yourself, they're huge pieces of sculpture, but they're single pieces. That's the key concept. He's not interested in welding together pieces to create something bigger. It needs to be one continuous element. And so with that one continuous element, he always uses the same material. It's called Corten steel. It's a very special steel, which um, its oxidizing uh, process lasts for seven to eight years. And he does this amazing curving pieces. And it's all about how much curvature and what shape can he create with these uh, pieces of steel. And he says that he walked in into San Cargino. He was inspired to create an oval that torques on itself. He's, he wanted to take the plan of San Carlino and elevate the sculpture and torque it to reach the dome on top. And that's his piece called Ellipsis, which is sitting in New York, actually. So this oh. building from Borromini keeps inspiring people up until today. Uh, before going into Bernini's masterpiece, I'll just say, uh, at one point, Borromini was renovating the facades of a church, and it happened to be right in front of Bernini's home, <laughs> where he lived, in you know, his, his palace, yes. <laughs> oh, Bernini must have loved watching that. He, he had a very big palace. It, there's a plaque there today in Rome. It's near all the famous uh, shops around the Spanish steps. It's literally 100 meters away from the Spanish steps. And all his windows, he had like 20 windows overlooking Borromini's work. <laughs> and what he would do is that he would grab um, a bull's testicles, uh, dried testicles of a bull, and hang them from the window that overlooked Borromini's uh, construction site. And that in Italian lingo is an insult from one architect to another. So this is how close to each other they were. And there was no That's lost love. Absolutely nuts. I, I mean. <laughs> yes. Did Bernini continue his career much longer after Borromini died? Yes, and I, I know you said Bernini lived a long time. Yes. But, uh, you know, it didn't sound like he made enough to retire if he wanted to. Let me go back to Bernini's masterpiece because it ties into this, into both Borromini's uh, oh, death. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, so... Most people would say Bernini's masterpiece is St. Peter's. But as we've seen, St. Peter's has the work of 10 other architects. So it's hard to call it his own. Although most third-rate guides in Rome will tell you that it's designed by Bernini, which is not really the case. However, there's a very important part of St. Peter's that was designed by Bernini, which is masterful. So the Pope, when Maderno was working on the project, ask Maderno to change the plan of St. Peter's from a Greek cross to a Latin cross, making the building much bigger and longer. Because he wanted that when a person walked into the church, that you had to make a procession all the way to the altar. And Karen, you've been to St. Peter's, right? Oh, I've been to St. Peter's. Yeah. You, you could um, 
uh, get older walking down, down exactly. the, <laughs> the length of the of the nave there. Yeah. So imagine when you walk into St. Peter's, if your objective is to get to the altar, every step you take is just building up more anticipation because it gets it, it takes such a long time to get there. So that's yeah. the procession that uh, that the Pope wanted. But the problem with that is that then what happens is that the dome that sits on top of the baldachin and the, and the altar is obscured from the view from the outside of the church. The running joke in Rome is, and the dome is designed by Michelangelo. The running joke in Rome is that you can see Michelangelo's dome from everywhere in Rome, except when you're in front of St. Peter's. <laughs> yeah. So Maderno was highly criticized by many architects from then till now for having obliged the Pope because it ruined the symbol of the Vatican or St. Mm. Peter's actually. Again, I referenced the Capitol building in the US. When you see the Capitol building with that dome, it's a single unit. And that doesn't happen with the facade of St. Peter's. Actually, next time that you see a movie where they reference St. Peter's, if, if you pay attention, what directors do is they take a shot of the saints on top of the facade, or they take a shot of the dome from another part of the city. They never put you from the perspective in front of the square because there's nothing to see. It's a square facade. It's very dull, which is Bernini's facade. You cannot see the dome from there. So what Bernini did is a colonnade. This colonnade makes you want to be further back from the facade and the That's more the, the one that curves it sort because you feels like you're standing at the end of a, of like a horseshoe right right when exactly. you're across the courtyard there yeah it, exactly and it's in an oval plan and who had been doing oval plans before that oh i thought that was borromini's wheelhouse that is borromini's wheelhouse so you can see that they're referencing mm. each other and that's going to be a very important thing for what i think is his masterpiece so he is a genius in designing that square, which is not a square. <laughs> it's an oval piazza, yeah, which yeah. Not, doesn't force you, but actually makes you want to stand back so you can properly admire that dome and see Berini's facade with the Campanile that he ended up fixing. So the Campanile, the, the bell towers did not fall. And the majesty of what is to, to see in one single shot, St. Peter's. So that's what most people would say is his masterpiece. Now, however, I differ. For me, if you're standing in front of San Carlino, which is Borromini's known masterpiece, and you walk 50 paces, you'll get to Sant'Andrea al Quirinale. Quirinale is the street it's on. And that's Bernini. And that's where Bernini does an oval-shaped church. It's a single plan. It's not a Latin cross plan. It's all centralized, and it's one big oval. And what crystallizes this as, for me, this being his masterpiece, are two things. One is, his son has a written account that he says one day in his carriage, he was riding with his father, and they rode past Piazza Navona, and they see his father's great fountain. And Gian Lorenzo closes the drapes in his carriage and confesses out loud and says, how could I have done so wrong? So he's starting to regret his own work. For some reason, he was not fulfilled by this fountain that was very well loved by both the Pope and the people and that bested Borromini's competition that it was already won. However, to his son, he also said, at one point where they were doing the construction of Sant'Andrea, 
this church that is paces away from Borromini's masterpiece. He said, son, this is the work in which I'm truly content with. I think this is my best work yet. This is where he tries to do an oval plan. So you've got one street, Quirinale Street. You've got 100 meters difference, San Carlino on one side and Santander on the other side. These two architects who hated each other, who fought tooth and nail to get commissions from each other. One is arguing that the other one has structural problems at the Vatican, at St. Peter's. The other one is trying to win competitions over him, both tackling an oval-shaped or an elliptical-shaped plan. And it's just beautiful to watch. It's the staircases all over again. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's his masterpiece. Now, Bernini, living the life that he lived, which could be said that was very opulent, had a kind of a change in mind. And instead of really designing his own space, he just selected where he wanted to be buried. And he went back to his childhood. Uh, when he first moved to Rome from Naples with his father, they lived in an area of Rome where the main church is called Santa Maria Maggiore. And so for him, which was a very different part of Rome where he lived as you know, an adult in his own palace, well, not palace, but a very large house, he said he wanted to be buried back there uh, along the memories of his childhood. And so if you go in there today, Santa Maria Maggiore, uh, to the right side of the altar, you'll see a plaque. It says Gian Lorenzo Bernini. A very nice plaque, but very humble. Nothing too extravagant. No sculptural pieces, no special paintwork, nothing. Just a marble slab. Borromini had a change of heart as well. As we talked about it, he had designed his own space, a very grand thing to do, to be buried in. But he was very sick at the end of his life. And he was working constantly as he had been working all his life. And he needed help. He had a servant uh, because of his sickness, he needed help. And so he asked his servant at 3 a.m. to light a candle for him so he can continue drawing. And the servant had been told by the doctor that Borromini had to keep some rest. So he said, no, it's too late. First thing in the morning, I'll light a candle for you. And so Borromini agrees, it's okay, first thing in the morning. So 6 a.m. comes around, he shouts at his servant, candle please. And the servant says, no, master, it's too early, one more hour. And he gets so mad that his servant is not obliging him he grabs a sword that was at the edge of the table and sticks it into his thorax through his stomach. His, his the servant's thorax or his own? <laughs> his own thorax. He slides it in. And so this is that suicide. That seems rather excessive a response to not getting a light turned on, but I guess his state of mind at, at this point being un, unwell physically. Um, wow, I, that's quite dramatic <laughs> very dramatic very on point for borromini um so he did not die immediately uh, i think he died a couple of weeks afterwards from his wounds and in that time he changed his mind he didn't want to be buried in the, in the space he had designed for himself he has to be buried in the same church where his uncle carlo maderno who he had worked for under at the at saint peter's was also buried it's a church called San Giovanni Ferentino, which is right across the river from St. Peter's. And that's where Borromini is buried today. Um, now, it's an issue. Why is he buried in a church if he committed suicide? I don't know the, the details from that because it's allegedly the Catholic Church doesn't allow that. But I can tell you one big thing is that 
there are sculptures of Bernini inside that building. Oh, wow. <laughs> so even in death, Probably they're Boromini chasing each other. Bernini knew that. Well, yes. Presumably he knew that. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, that, that suggests some kind of um, uh, a late, um, shall we say, social skill that he might have acquired that he could he could overlook that mm. to be in the, in the church that he wanted to um wow well fireworks till the <laughs> ends bernini has a really simple monument to himself it's just a simple marble slab well the guy could afford to do that right because look at all the amazing standing architecture and and artworks mm. that are his real monument as you say throughout the city of rome um what, what do you think that we can learn today by studying these structures and spaces that, that these rival genius architects created in Rome? It's very difficult to answer that. I think this is a stepping stone within the broader historical timeline of, of architecture. I think the life of architects has changed very little from what we just discussed, unfortunately. Uh, we're struggling to get clients uh, it is a profession that is uh, overrun with a, a class system for sure. You know, not everybody has money to build. Of course, most people rent spaces. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, I think in that, what I like to call that staircase of the architectural timeline, you know, the Baroque then evolves to the Rococo, which just takes this opulence and movement to absurd levels. And so that then becomes a reaction to stop that. And then you go into another movement, which is uh, Palladianism, which goes back to the Renaissance in a neo way. And more or less, that's where the buildings from, um, from America, the first uh, buildings by Thomas Jefferson, go back to that sort of more classical, mm. more serene. More, orders. a little more restrained. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, there's a bit of a high and then a bit of the hangover from these things. And, and then if you start seeing this over and over again, and in architecture, you start to read tendencies and start to read when a movement is, uh, has good foundations or when a movement is just reactionary. You know, aside from the, the question of sort of the class system, which has been retained, how, how has the profession of architect changed today? And let's just say there aren't popes popping in and out <laughs> and, and causing more problems um, with their their carrot and stick approach? No, but I'll tell you, uh, in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of new nations being created. Um, and so there was a need for creating capital cities. So you would see that in Brazil, in the 50s, Brasilia was overnight built. And you see that in Asia, Bangladesh was designed um, by a very famous architect called Louis Kahn. Uh, actually, his building is on, on one of the Bangladesh notes. And so Maybe popes are not the, the main uh, patriarchs now, but there's other types of patriarchs for, at that level. How has the profession changed? <laughs> I like to think not that much, but of course the tools have changed quite a bit. Um, our designs are, uh, are created faster and more detailed. And so it is capable of doing things like, for example, the things that Frank Gehry does. But in essence, the ideas are what is at the core of these things. And the idea is all about innovation and functionality, how to cover your client's wants and needs, and then how to add a little sentence to the conversation of the history of architecture and just kind of put your little stone on top 
and say, okay, well, this is what I'm adding to the profession and constantly be adding. So in that sense, it hasn't changed at all. But of course, you know, we've got 3D printing, we've got, you know, uh, very advanced 3D modeling and all these things. But in the end, ideas are ideas. How do you think people will view what's being produced today, both kind of standalone and, and within this great staircase of, of architectural evolution, as you described it? Well, if I speculate, if I dare to speculate, I like to think that um, it will represent adequately its time, its technology, um, its cultural ethos. So, you know, a, a, a professor of mine used to say that architecture is money and we've, we've been talking about the popes and the money. And in, in a way it's sense it's true because a, a culture that has no money to build can build can build. So then there will be no, no uh, testimony of those buildings if they were never built. It does take money to build. But, um, you know, when you go to Northern Europe, you see a much more um, minimalist architecture when I'm talking about religious architecture. Um, Scandinavia and, for example, the Netherlands, the religious buildings there are much more austere is the right word, I think, like to say, if you compare it to what you see in Italy. And that's a cultural difference. So I like to think in the future, uh, when people look back in our times, I, I don't know what particular opinions they'll have of it, but I just hope that it represents adequately its, its time and that we're not copying, you know, what we call revivals. You know, you can go yeah. to different parts of the world and see, oh, this is done in the Tudor style, but it was built in 2020. Elon Musk is doing... Um, solar uh, panels that look like, you know, 14th century Spanish tiling uh, on the roofs. And that's, why don't you make it like a, you know, 21st century looking roof instead of kind of trying to replicate the old with new technology. So these are the are things- Are you that... honestly gonna think that we could try to figure out what is going on in Elon Musk's head? I'm sorry, that's <laughs> too much to ask, Viviana. <laughs> it's a tall bar, yes. Sorry. <laughs> and. Finally, um, you founded your own studio in 2015, right? Mm. Called Mass Operations. And you operate both in Mexico and in Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, and I, I would love to hear a little bit about your personal philosophy of architecture as expressed through the work that you, you know, started this studio to do. Yeah, well, I was, it's very surprising. I never envisioned myself arriving in Hong Kong. So I lived there for eight years and started the office there after working for this Dutch architect called Rem Kohlhaas. And the office started there with interior designs and then slowly some architecture projects started coming up in Mexico. So eventually, or very quickly, I must say that the office was always very mobile. Uh, I've never had a team bigger than seven people. And I've always been remote going back and forth between the two continents. And the that's name... not a quick commute. <laughs> no, it is definitely not. Uh, well, and I get a sort of, I would think, like culturally as well as geographically. I mean, that's beyond the scope of our conversation here, but it's all very interesting. But that's a very important thing for an architect. You need to be able to understand who you're building for. Uh, in that sense, we're like very uh, obsessive researchers when a client. Uh, comes to us with a project to find out what exactly do they need. Most of the time, the client doesn't know what they need. We have to figure it out for them and kind of bring up that conversation. But the, the name of the office, Mass Operations, um, 
comes really from the way we work. So we think that as architects, the only thing we have in our hands is material, mass, matter. And so we try to explain every project as a series of steps or operations that when applied to this matter generates space. And that's where the architecture lies, you know? And so that's the, the idea. I love it. Them. It's like, a, it's a, a, almost like a, a qualitative equation. Yes, definitely. It's very uh, modus operandi. Is there any kind of particular direction that this philosophy that mass operations is built around that your work tends to, to take as a result? Well, that's a good question. The, our philosophy behind um, our work really ties into what, what I just said, actually, in that we become these obsessive researchers to the point where actually <clears throat> we have to become experts, talking about Renaissance uh, human beings, that you have to know about everything. If one day uh, we get hired to do a coffee shop, which we've done, we need to become experts in the act of making a good pot of coffee and you know how the well, and in that place right yes. in that place yeah i as an anthropologist i completely get that and now we all live in a space so we all have you know bedrooms and living rooms and kitchens but when you get hired to do a coffee um shop well have you ever done or sold coffee no then we have to figure that out we've been asked to do dental clinics we've done dental clinics so we'll like figure out what what are the spaces that a, a dentist needs well they need an x-ray room so the x-ray needs lead panelings so that the x-rays don't kind of go all over the place and again this becomes with a larger scale with architecture when we've done mixed use projects where there's in a single project there's a hotel there's a shopping venue there's a cultural space like a theater all plugged into one well what do these spaces need from each other? How do they use, you know, how do services, lifts or elevators or parking spaces all coexist in this whole environment? Um, any particular ways that you're looking to learn more about figures like Bernini and Borromini? Well, yeah, constantly I'm looking forward to more research. Actually, I'm interviewing an author of one of his uh, uh, re one of his books is research on Bernini and Borromini. And I'm hoping to ask him a lot of these questions that are still open for me, many of these things that I just mentioned are available, but are very hidden. There are all these archives in Rome that are not published, that you have to go there and open these boxes, have to make a, an appointment, and then you'll find the original drawings and the original uh, designs. And that's really the only way to, um, to find out. And then of course, that makes you a scholar once you kind of publish your findings. So really interested in all of that. And this is something I do every summer with students. I, um, oh. I, I organize a free uh, tour through Rome, two days, uh, to see chronologically the life and works of these two architects. So we walk about you know, 15 miles each day to see all these buildings and hear about all these stories in a very sort of romantic way. And then the next two following days, we go visit the exhibits at the Venice Biennale. So we do two days in Rome and two days in Venice. And oh, that uh, sounds fabulous. How does one become a student of yours to do such things? Well, the, the, the nice thing is that you don't have to be a student of architecture. So it's really anybody who's interested in the topic. I've had people that are uh, senior citizens sign up, but most of the time it's students of mine or people that know students of mine that sign up. The easiest way is just to go into our site. We, my site is massoperations.com. 
And there's a link there that says study travel. And when there is an upcoming trip, that is usually the summers, right now we haven't organized it because of COVID, there's a sign-up page right there. And Oh, fantastic. All right. So massoperations.com for anyone who wants to get down on the ground and see some of these amazing places that you've shared with us today, uh, Viviano, and really just brought them to life in such memorable fashion with Bernini versus Borromini. Oh, I've had such a great time listening to this and, and I have learned so much myself. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Karen, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. For the astonishingly prolific output of Bernini's and Borromini's competitive creativity, the grounds for their rivalry reveal that their patron popes were the most powerful architects of Renaissance culture and society. And like I so often do, I'm kind of marveling that these fathers of the church found the time, much less the energy, for their elected apostolic duties. But I digress, and that's definitely a topic for another episode. For all they acted at the behest of a long string of popes, Bernini and Borromini pulled no punches in their bids to one-up and outshine each other on Western Christendom's largest public stage to date. The city of Rome, and all of us lucky enough to experience it, are forever the better for it. So thank you, Bernini and Borromini, for playing your game of popes so masterfully and for so long. Hey there. You can follow today's guest and all of his amazing work at Mass Operations on Instagram and go to his website, massoperations.com. His team's two recent projects, one residential and one commercial, finished construction this past August and are up for an award at the Mexico Architecture Biennial this October 29th. Good luck, Viviano. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries and check out our website, workingovertimepodcast.com. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>